So as we get started this morning, I'd like to pose a question for us to contemplate. That question is, what's your reputation? If we were to go to your family and ask them what your reputation is, what would their response be? What if we went to your friends outside of your family? What if we went to your coworkers and asked them, what's this individual's reputation? What would their response be? And then whenever you compare those responses, would there be a commonality there, or would they be disparate responses? Does it even matter? Does God care about our reputation? Well, hopefully, we're going to have some idea around that before we're done here this morning. If you, take, uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to open it up to Acts chapter 17, you can pull that map up, Evan, if you would. <clears throat> Last week, Mike talked to us from Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas were in Philippi. They were beaten, and then they were released. Well, they left Philippi, which is right up around here. And in Acts chapter 17, here in verse 1, we're going to see that they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia on their way to Thessalonica. Now, from Philippi to Amphipolis is about 33 miles. Amphipolis over to Apollonia is about... Um, 20 plus miles, and then from Apollonia over to Thessalonica is about another 40. So this is about a 100-mile trip from Philippi over to Thessalonica, and they did not have cars. So that's quite a trip. Now, what do we know about Thessalonica? Thessalonica was actually the capital of the province of Macedonia. It was the largest and the most prosperous city. You can see where it's located here, right along the water, And that made it, uh, geographically, a really strategic area. And it connected the interior, which was agriculturally rich, with the land and the sea routes there that were accessible through Thessalonica. And therefore, it attracted a large diversity of people, in addition to a large Jewish contingent. And the population of Thessalonica was about 200,000. So that's the background for the context of our discussion this morning. Later on at the end of the chapter, we're going to see that they went from Thessalonica over to Berea, and that's about another 50-mile jaunt. So these guys are on the move. They they don't just walk a mile. We we go out and we walk around the neighborhood and we walk a mile or two, and that's good exercise. But uh, the distances that these guys are traveling is pretty exceptional. So Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So as soon as Paul went there, or got there, he went to the synagogue. Why would he go to the synagogue? Any thoughts? Okay, there you go. Where, this is the spiritual hub of the town. This is where the people that were interested in talking about things from a spiritual nature would have been. This is where Paul would have had, I don't want to say the most receptive, because there would have been Jews there that would have been very opposed to his message, but he would have met people there that would have been open to having some discussion around spiritual things. It also says that he did this for three Sabbaths. So it wasn't like Paul walked in, took the megaphone, shouted it from the rooftops, and left. 
Not that that's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? We can still proclaim the name of Christ in, in any type of situation. But he went, and the anticipation was he was going to be there for a while. So he gave these individuals that he was preaching to an opportunity to be able to listen, to receive, to process, to think through it, to ask questions, maybe to even express some doubt to Paul. That doesn't happen overnight. That takes some time, and Paul gave the audience an opportunity to do that. We also see at the beginning of verse 2, it says, Paul went in, or Paul went to them. He didn't wait for them to come to him. As a church, God calls us to go as well. Now, we can't all go to the Philippines. We can't all go to Indonesia. We can't all go to various churches in the region uh, around Pottstown. But we can still be part of that. Who can be part of that by sending? And that's a great component of what we can do from a ministry standpoint with others that are able to go. Now, where we can go is to our neighbors and to those that are in our sphere of influence. And the question becomes, are we going to them or are we waiting for them to come to us? Now, God certainly can still bring them to us, but he tells us, and we see also in this example of Paul, that he went in, that he went. Verse 3 explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So there was a response to their message. As did a, many, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. I'm always perplexed. I looked at different translations, and it's and, some, and not a few of the, the leading women. It just, it's an interesting way to actually state the fact that there were a number of women that responded to this. And it says the leading women as well. Now, I think one of the things to keep in mind here is that it's not just men that responded. It was women that responded. And Luke considers that important enough to put it in here. The other thing, it says leading women. And there's a little bit of uh, maybe discrepancy in terms of what leading men, women referred to, but uh, some of the, a couple of commentaries that I looked at referred to the leading women as those that were married to principal citizens within the towns. Now, we don't know that definitively, but I do find it interesting that uh, the women are particularly noted here. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So there was a problem here. The Jews didn't like what was going on. There was a response to the truth being preached, to Paul's message, and the Jews didn't like it. So what did they do? They raised up a riot. The rabble refers basically to the common people. So they went to those around the town and said, we got a problem, help us with this. And so they created a situation that we don't see a lot of this type of situation in our society today where there are riots, per se, but we do see uprisings against the truth. And so what we're seeing here isn't all that dissimilar, maybe in form a little bit, but the perspective around it and the purpose behind it is not all that dissimilar. Why would they have been jealous? Position. Quite possibly position. Now, some of these Jews were probably in a position where they had, quote-unquote, 
followings, or they considered themselves to have followings. And so whenever Paul got a greater following, and actually Paul wasn't looking for a following, he was looking to point people to Christ, but whenever, they, whenever Paul got a following, they potentially were, were jealous. Yeah, quite possibly, yes. Yep, very good, Dave. So they've got this uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. Now, why did they go to Jason's house? Well, Jason was the one that was putting Paul and Silas up. And we see here in verse 6, and when they could not find them, so they couldn't find Paul and Silas. So they go to the house where these missionaries, I'm just going to call them missionaries, uh, were staying, and they couldn't find them. So what did they do? They dragged out Jason and the other brothers. Okay, so we come to your house. You are providing a place of living or at least a, a, a place of hospitality to somebody who's proclaiming the truth. We can't find the ones we're finding, so we'll just take you instead. And we'll take you, and we'll take anybody else that's affiliated with you too. And we're going to drag you out, which they did, before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So the intent with these Jews was to find Paul and Silas, bring them before the magistrates of Thessalonica, and bring a charge against them. The charge was breaking the Pax Romana by advocating for an illegitimate religion and then also for preaching or teaching about another king who would have been in opposition to Caesar, which was Jesus. They couldn't find him, and so, as we said, they took out Jason and the others. We're going to come back to this a little bit later on in our conversation But that quote, these men who have turned the world upside down. We're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about that particular quote. But wouldn't it be incredible for us to have that type of reputation within the town of Pottstown? We'll come back to that in a little bit. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these sayings. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. So they dragged him out. They couldn't find Paul and Silas. Said, you're the ones that are putting them up, so give us money and then we'll let you go. So they did. They posted bond. And part of that bond was an assurance from Paul, or about Paul and Silas that they would leave. And we see... Actually, later in 1 Thessalonians, we're not going to turn there necessarily, but in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul states at one point that he desired to come back to the Thessalonian church, back to Thessalonica, but the statement was that Satan hindered us. Now, was that physically Satan? Was that theoretically Satan? Or was part of that the bond that was stated where they abided, Paul and Silas abided by the rules that were set in accordance with this bond, they left and didn't come back because they didn't want to put the other believers in jeopardy, which would have been the case had they returned to Thessalonica, or which also would have been the case had they not left in the first place. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, about 50 miles further away. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Mm -hmm. I see some consistency here. They did the same thing. 
They went to Thessalonica. They went to the synagogue. They get to Berea. They go to the synagogue for the same reasons. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Hmm, interesting. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. More noble. Noble. When we think of the word noble, we think of nobility, maybe power, position, but that's not the case. These in Berea were not in a better place in terms of their socioeconomic status or their hierarchy of position. It says that they were noble because they took what Paul stated and they compared it to the scriptures. Now, what scriptures would they have had in those days? They would have had the Old Testament. So they're comparing it to the Old Testament. There's a really slim possibility they might have had Mark or maybe a portion of Mark. When you look at the dates, Mark was the earliest gospel that was completed. And when you look at the dates, depending on when this happened, they may have had some components of Mark, um, maybe the book of Mark. We don't know for sure, but they did have the Old Testament. And so they're comparing it to the Old Testament. Now, their nobility stemmed from their willingness to acknowledge their need and their eagerness to listen to the words and the message of Paul. Matthew 18, 3 and 4 states, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I would submit to us, one thing to potentially consider is biblical nobility. And according to this particular passage in Matthew, biblical nobility corresponds with childlikeness. And that's what he's seeing. That's what's happening here with the Bereans. They acknowledge their need. They compare things to the scriptures, and they're open to the truth. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So the context here, whenever you look at the Greek, isn't it, whenever it talks about um, the individuals, it's not just those, sorry, I need to, oh, uh, there we go. Yep, we're in 11 to 15. Sorry, I f- forgot to move those forward. So the, the context here is not just those that were seeking spiritual answers, but also pagan Gentiles. So those that were being converted were not just the religious, if you will. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they left them alone. That's not what they said. It's not what saved them. They didn't leave them alone. They went there too. 50 miles. That's like further than Philadelphia to here, right? That's less than 50 miles down into Philadelphia. Again, they don't have cars. So these guys are committed. These Thessalonians are committed to thwarting anything that Paul is doing. Now, are they against Paul, or are they against the truth? Yeah, they're against God. And they're doing whatever they can to keep Paul and Silas from proclaiming and teaching the truth. You've got to give them credit. They really are committed. So they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul 
brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So we see Paul and Silas had impact in Thessalonica. They were booted out there. They went to Berea. They had impact as well. Paul ended up leaving. Silas ended up staying. Now, there are two things that I'd like us to focus on. So that's, that's the overview of what's going on in this passage. There are two things I'd like us to focus on this morning, and they're both in the earlier, uh, a couple of the earlier verses within the passage. I'm going to jump back to verses 2 to 4, if you guys um, have your Bibles, and I'm going to move on to Paul's model, Paul and Silas's model of evangelism. And what we see are a list of words, specifically verbs here in verses 2 to 4, that talk about Paul's model of evangelism. And I'd like us to work through these together. The first one we see in verse 2. Paul went in, and as it was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The Greek word for the word reasoned is dialegami. Say that with me. Dialegami. Okay? Figured we'd channel a little bit of DJ here, even though he's not with us. So, dialegami is the Greek word for reasoned. This particular word appears ten times in Acts chapter 17 to 24 in reference to Paul's ministry, and actually became the term describing his teaching in the synagogue. thought that was relatively interesting. What it means is to give an address, to preach, to converse. And it is the first of a series of six verbs that are used to describe the way that Paul presented the message. The second one is explaining. We're not going to say the Greek for each one of these, but you see it listed up there. Uh, the second word is explaining, which means to open thoroughly. Okay? Not just to open, but to open thoroughly. So to do something thoroughly means to take time. Paul actually took time to discuss the message. We see this particular word also used in Luke chapter 24, verse 32, where it says, They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he, being Jesus, was explaining the scriptures to us. Same word, opening and explaining thoroughly. The next word is proving or giving evidence. Depending on your translation, it might say proving, it might say giving evidence. And this corresponds or implies that Paul carefully answered questions, responded to objections, and demonstrated the validity of what he was saying. Now, why would it have been important for Paul to give evidence? This message was new. And if somebody comes in to us and starts preaching something or teaching something to us that is different from what we have been taught up until that point in time, in a lot of cases it's going to take a little bit of convincing, and then we might even have some questions. And that's what is referred to here for what Paul was doing. Proclaim, to announce or declare, to proclaim publicly. He was proclaiming the clear message of Christ. And then the other two verbs look at the response to the message. Where people were persuaded, some of them were persuaded and then joined. Persuaded and joined. When we see the word persuaded, sometimes that particular word has a negative connotation to it. 
And you might even look at this and think, hmm, I'm, that might even cause a little bit of discomfort for us. Paul's intent in going to the synagogue and having these conversations was not just to compare notes spiritually. Paul's intent, whenever he went and had these conversations and proclaimed Christ, Christ was to have an impact and to change behavior and to have action involved with that. It wasn't just to, let's take a look at this and compare what I've got and see what you think. The intent was for action on the back end. Yes, he took time to discuss. Yes, he took time to answer the questions. Yes, he took time to receive pushback and and considerations. Absolutely. But his goal was to present Christ and see people change. The word here in the Greek has the context of convincing someone to believe something and then act on the basis of what they've heard. Luke actually uses this word seven times in Acts as well to describe Paul's evangelism. Now the question becomes, though, if we are persuading or speaking to convince, whenever we do that, are we manipulating or are we motivating? There's a difference between those two. Paul was not manipulating people. He was not manipulating the truth. He was preaching the truth for the sake of motivating people to respond. And that's what the context is here for us. And then proskleru, which is the final word, which means joined, means that there was some action. They were convinced to respond, and they accepted the message, and then they joined Paul and Silas. They were converted, is what that word means. So we see these four things that Paul did, and then we see the response to that. Paul certainly gave evidence. He gave people time to respond. He gave them the opportunity to ask questions. And that's what we're called to do as well. We are called to share Christ. We are called to be witnesses for him. But we're also called to respond to questions and to help people process so that they can make a decision to follow Christ. One of the other components before we leave this particular part of the passage is to consider that Paul's message took them to a place of confrontation with the cross and who Jesus is. There's a tendency in our culture today because, because we live in a pluralistic society, there's a tendency for churches to really to reach out to meet felt needs. And we need to be doing that. There's no question. We need to reach out and minister to, the peop- to people's needs. We need to minister to felt needs. There are a lot of needs right across our congregation this morning. Carol prayed for a couple of them specifically, of folks that are not here because of needs that they have. We need to minister to those. But as a church, if at the end or as part of that discussion, if we're not leading people to Christ, we're not taking them to the one that is all in all, to the one that is all I need, all that we need, then we're really missing the point. So how do our evangelistic efforts measure up? 
to false individually. I just, this is a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for an answer. But how do our individual evangelistic situations, opportunities, and efforts compare to the example that Paul set for us? What about us as a congregation? How do our evangelistic efforts measure up? There's always going to be opportunity. Are we seeking God to give us strength and direction within those? We're going to shift now a little bit and move into the context down here in verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So we started off our conversation this morning. I asked you a couple of questions, asked us, myself included, to contemplate what our reputations are. Before we get into that, I'm going to ask you what you think, and we're going to, I'm going to do this as a poll. I'm going to pose a question for you, and then I'm going to ask you to take a vote. You have two options. When you think of America in general and our society, do you think most people are concerned about their reputation, or are they concerned about their character? I'm not saying within the church. I'm not saying us individually. I'm not saying us corporately as a congregation. But Americans in general, how many of us would say, I think most Americans are more concerned about their reputation than they are their character? Who would say yes? All right. How many of us would say, I think it's more character? All right, about a third of us didn't vote. You had two options. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so either I didn't explain that very well or we just chose to take that politically and abstain, right? Which is what we see a lot of times in our culture too. So the overwhelming majority stated that we think most people are concerned, Americans are most, uh, mostly concerned with the reputation. We see that in social media. The amount of time that people put in their Instagram or their Facebook or the posts that they put just to make sure that they look a certain way. We see a lot of celebrities doing that too. Not just, celebrities aren't the only ones that are doing that, but we see that very commonly where we are very concerned as a society, generally speaking, about the way that we are portrayed to other people. Verse 6, the New American Standard says, upset the world. The ESV and the King James say, turn the world upside down. The NIV says, caused trouble all over the world. And then they all end up the same way, and they have come here also. So the insinuation is, these are, these are raucous people. There's a problem. And they came here, and they're trying to raise it up here as well. But who are they turning the world upside down for? They turn the world upside down for Christ. The word reputation is defined as the estimation in which a person or thing is held, especially in the community or the public generally. What others say and think about you. So when I created this slide deck, I had some builds here. It's all posted up here. Whenever we imported it into the presentation here, I, I, I lose the opportunity to be able to build. So please don't work too far ahead, but these are some of the questions we're going to answer throughout the next uh, 20 minutes or so. What contributes to a person's reputation? What they do. There are actions, absolutely. What else? Personality. Very good. Our verb, our verbiage, what we say. Anything else? 
character. We hope, right? You're getting ahead of me, Bob, but that's good. How we look. Yes. Is our reputation solely based on all of those things, or is part of our reputation based on the way that those things are interpreted? There's a, there, there are two components here, right? We can be completely genuine in our motivations for something, and it be misinterpreted by somebody else. Okay? We're not responsible for a misinterpretation, but when we do have an opportunity to be able to clarify, we should clarify. What we do have responsibility for are our motivations. The things that we say, the things that we do, the character behind uh, all of those. But there are a number of things that contribute to our reputation, some of them being a little bit outside of our control. What was Jesus' reputation? Friend of sinners. Good. A healer. Yes. There you go. It depends on who the evaluator is, right? I'm going to read you a few verses. Matthew 11:19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That verse ends with, Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. But what was his reputation with that group? He was a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. They came to Jesus and woke him up. This is in the boat out at sea. Jesus is in the lower deck or somewhere, and he's sleeping while the wind and the waves are tormenting everybody in the boat. They came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed. Can you imagine? You guys don't really know who Jesus is yet. So they're still trying to figure this out. Hence the fearful and amazed saying to one another, who then is this that commands even the winds and the water and they obey? That's a reputation. But depending on who you're talking to, Jesus had different reputations as well. That's not all that different from us. Now one of the other questions we posed earlier on, does God care? Does God care what our reputation is? Well, let's take a look at a few verses around that. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Those will lead to a good reputation. Galatians 2.9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, 
gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and made to be circumcised. Acts chapter 6, this talks about the establishment of deacons. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. You jump over to 1 Timothy, and it talks about elders, qualifications of elders. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Hmm. Philippians 4.8. We're going to actually spend some time on this uh, throughout the rest of our time here together. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So I'll pose the question again. You don't need to respond. But is God concerned about a reputation? Well, if he is, actually, if he's not, then why is it important for a qualification for a deacon or an elder to have a good reputation? But if he's not, then how do we balance 1 Samuel 16, 7, that says, but the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry, but if he is, then how do we balance 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, I realize this is physical appearance, back to what you had said, Patty. Um, maybe I'm taking the, a, a step further and adding reputation to this, but I don't think that's necessarily completely out of the realm of possibility because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So I would submit to us that the Scripture's comment about reputation in these verses that we just referenced. Because a person's reputation is developed from external observations of internal motivations. The perception of who we are, not completely bulletproof because people can interpret whatever they want to interpret, right? But for the most part, the perception of who we are is a direct reflection of the motivations of our heart of our character. John Wooden, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, basketball coach for UCLA back from 1948 to 1997, won 10 NCAA championships in a 12-year period, seven in a row, more than any other coach has ever won. The most that's ever been won in a row outside of that is two. He won seven. A quote that he is famous for, that he would tell his players, and he would build a foundation of success on this. Be more concerned with your character than your reputation. And then the parenthetical part, the end of that, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think of you. But our reputation should be developed from our character. Character we define as the aggregate of features and traits that form the individual nature of a person, the mental and moral qualities distinctive of an individual. Where do those mental and moral qualities emanate from? As Christians, they come from our faith. I would submit to you that in conjunction 
up here with Philippians 4, verse 8. It's also what we put in our minds. Our faith is the foundation, but we choose what we feed ourselves. Question being, is what we're feeding ourselves, what we're putting in our minds, in conjunction with this list in Philippians 4.8. We are bombarded in our society with things that are not just, pure, honorable, true. Everywhere we look, we're bombarded with those things. Research shows that in a lifespan of just under 80 years, I don't know if that's the average or not, but that's what I found in the research. Uh, a lifespan of just under 80 years, we spend about 26 years sleeping, so about a third. For some of us, that's a lot more. For some of us, that's a lot less. Okay, But about 26 years sleeping, about 13 years at work, and about 11 years in front of a screen. Now, that's a lot of screen time. That's not just your computer. That's your TV. That's your phone. That's everything. 11 years in front of a screen. Some of us work at jobs where this is probably a lot more because that's what you do. But on average, it's 11 years in front of a screen. Whenever we're in front of the screen, what are we filling our minds with? Whatever's on the screen, that's exactly right. And so in those situations where we have control over that, we don't always have control, right? Things pop up, that happens. But whenever we have control over that is what we're filling our minds with on this list. And if it's not, what might God have us do about that? Let's go one step deeper. Would suggest that our reputation is typically based on our character, and that the foundation of our character is our identity. Thus, if our identity is misaligned, that affects our character and then ultimately our reputation as well. So, I want to finish our conversation this morning talking a little bit about identity. Individually, we all have individual identities and we have identity as a church. We're going to talk a little bit about both of these. But individually, our identity should be rooted in Christ. A lot of times, especially in terms of our culture, that's not the case. We put our identity in so many other things other than Christ. We put it in our families, we put it in our spouses, we put it in other people, we put it in ministry. Those aren't bad things, but that's not our identity. Some people put it in their cars, their possessions, their houses, all those kind of things. And then whenever they lose those, they're empty. God wants us to put our identity in him. I was reminded of this this past week. I met... uh, an individual who just came into the company that I work with, moved up here with his family from Brazil eight years ago. And he was a veterinarian in Brazil, very well respected. He taught in academia, also practiced. He was a pathologist, very highly touted within his particular profession. When he came to the States, his license 
was not recognized here. He came here for other reasons. Part of it was his family. Um, but when he came here, his license was not recognized. So he couldn't practice veterinary medicine. But he had to take care of his family, so he took jobs that, were, that we would consider more of a, a menial task type of situation. And he was walking me through this this week. He's like, Mike, I really struggled with that because I'm a vet and I work with animals. And he didn't say this, but the context is I save animals' lives. I help people with their relationships with their cats and their dogs to bring better, bring better quality of life to people. He said, I couldn't do that. Well, through the course of time, um, he was able to get back involved with veterinary medicine, not necessarily from a practice, practicing standpoint, but he was able to get back involved with a profession that he loves, uh, continues to love, and also where he's able to have impact. And he had the opportunity to go to India with some other people, to a remote people group, like way back in. Off of the beaten path, he talked to me about, yeah, we flew, and then we got on a boat, and then we walked, and then we got there. And they went there for the sake of helping these animals. And when they got there, there were no animals. They were all dead. And there was, within this people group, there was starvation. There was massive disease. Well, those that he went with, they, they all had antibiotics and they had fluids to try to, for the sake of treating the animals. Well, they actually used them with the children that were there. And he continued to tell me this story. They actually went back multiple times after this first time. And he said, Mike, I came back from that trip. He said, my, my identity was transformed. It was no longer in what I did or my skills or my ability to teach from an academic standpoint. So I posed that to us just to contemplate. Individually, anytime our identity is not in Christ, it's not going to be whole. It's not going to be complete. It's not going to be whole. And it's not going to be where God wants it to be. So what about our identity as a church? And we're going to close with this. Who are we? Who are we becoming? We should always be becoming. If we're not becoming, then we're stagnant. And when we're stagnant, we know what happens. That's lukewarmness, and that's not where we want to be, because God says he'll spew you out of his mouth. So we always want to be becoming. Well, who are we becoming? You know, we've seen over the years opportunities where we as a congregation, some of this before Christine and I actually started coming here. So this is a component of who this congregation has been where raise up and send out. We see that actually demonstrated right now. Beth and the college family raised up, sent out years ago, and now even more recent, just getting back from Indonesia. The Henrys and the Martins in the Philippines right now. Again, we can't all go, but we can be part of sending where we can't go. Tim, here within the region, you know, for some of us, that was a painful situation to walk through. And God is working in that ministry incredibly. 
it's not always an easy thing whenever God places you or calls you into an identity that calls for people to go out to minister. But it's extremely fulfilling. Now, I don't know what God's calling us to in the future, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's something that continues to take place within our congregation. Are we going to embrace that? Or are we going to step back from that? You know, we looked at the beginning of this passage where it said Paul and Silas passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. My guess is that it would have probably been easier for them to just kind of stop and hang out there. But that wasn't God's call on their life. God's call on their life was to pass through to get to Thessalonica where they met some opposition. But God also blessed their ministry. As a church, if God calls us to pass through Apollonia and Amphipolis, are we going to be discerning enough to hear that? And if we are, will we be obedient enough to follow that? Worship team, if you would come up and close us out. I would like us as we close this morning just to consider these men who turned the world upside down. Wouldn't it be incredible is if as we go on the path that God calls us to, that that is our reputation. Parker Ford Church, whom God used to turn, you fill in the blank, upside down for Christ.